We are not alone. No, this is not an episode about aliens, but about alienation. In Western culture, we live by this idea that we are steadfastly individuals in life. Perhaps you and I identify with a particular tribe, but nonetheless think of ourselves as separate from most of humanity, from other species, and even more so, separate from the rocks and water and air that make up our planet. Psychologist Martin Wilkes talks about our neglected but vital connection to Mother Earth and to one another, and how we and our planet can heal through rediscovering that secret connection. We're all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. So, Martin, tell us a bit about yourself and your background and what it is that brought you to your current interests and thinking. Ah, it's often hard to know where to start, isn't it? But I guess from my voice, you know, I, I come from the UK, and uh, that's where I currently live. I, I actually came from an engineering background, you know, as far as my um, uh, my way of looking at the world. My first degree was in mechanical engineering, but um, I jumped out of that after a couple of years and went into psychology, not least because there weren't any there weren't any female students on the engineering course. <laughs> <laughs> and also I had a, probably had a, more of an interest in how human beings functioned than, than engines. I didn't go straight into psychology, though. did quite a lot of traveling and a, a lot of living a bit of an alternative lifestyle around which musicking was, was very much part of it wasn't really until midlife that I kind of professionalized myself a little more in terms of doing a master's in counseling psychology and turning towards becoming a counseling psychologist. But by that time, though, I'd been working in the UK prison system and in particular Brixton prison. I began there as a, a Buddhist minister. It, it, it was something that I'd been quite passionate about since the, the the mid-80s. And it was an opportunity after having been a music teacher in the prison to to find my way into the ministry and set up a service that was informed by mindfulness around about the same time, really began to run counseling services that, that necessarily were nothing to do with my kind of uh, Buddhist uh, leanings. Um, they needed to be profoundly secular, but at this time, the ideas of John Kabat-Zinn were beginning to filter across the the water. So that was that was an okay thing. I finished there in the um, 2010 or something like that, um, having left London a while back and currently living in on the Suffolk coast. But my interest in ACT began around that time of the integration of my mindfulness approach with uh, the therapy world. Um, and, and I should I should say once again for our listeners that ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy, which we've referred to before on this podcast. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I was delighted to discover a, a means of working with mindfulness and psychotherapy together, integrated, that was also a, a behavior change approach because my approach to counseling up until that time had been much more humanistic, um, client-centered. Um, 
and to to find an approach that with the focus on values allowed me to in a way be a little more directive than the person-centered model would have allowed um was altogether a liberating concept really and i became a peer-reviewed trainer in 2014 actually having started teaching act around about 2007 so quite an early adopter of of the model um yeah i think that's enough background for for me chris yeah i I was just i was just going to ask if were you doing the acceptance and commitment therapy mindfulness work in the prison yes towards the end so i set up the service there in 94 um and for quite a while i was i was working with my own model of of therapy which was more person centered um and that was what i'd trained in in the early 90s and how was that received in the prison system both in terms of the the actual clients the population we were working with as well as with the uh, the administrators yes very well uh, in the long run um and you know, had had to learn some skillful means with it. There was a a, a lot of, um, shall we say, the kind of taking the mickey from the prison officers about somebody coming in saying, "Come and do your mindfulness practice," and and, and running groups for 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 you know for prisoners, but but working out how to to just change the languaging a little bit in that context. So I called it the mind body workout group. And that was the, that was the, the kind of the weekly group for people who were on the waiting list for, for counseling um, would attend this, this, this group that was a mixture of, of, of physical workout and mental, I suppose, emotional, psychological, spiritual workout. It was very integrative. Indeed, yeah, very, very, um, and and also integrated into the the prison environment. Really, got a, c- a certain sort of a, a grip in the handshake of of that sort of description. A bit less, you know, incense sticks and bells, and and, and a bit more kind of um, you know the workout. Because many many of the prisoners, uh, you know, going to the gym for their workout is one of the highlights of their their daily existence. So, yeah, it was good to call it a workout. And bit by bit, I mean, I began the the service just as a two afternoons a week job for me. But by the time I left, I had a a group of volunteer counsellors in training, all kind of working to some extent with this model that I'd begun to develop. So it went down very well, really. And so has that been carried on then after you left it was for a while um but as providers uh, come and go and funding streams come from different sources i understand that it's it's ceased and um i'm not even sure if there is any counseling service of any sort there and if there is it's probably being provided um by possibly by the nhs or possibly yeah i'm not quite sure if it carried on well, you managed to drop a pebble into that pond and see some ripples go out, and perhaps Definitely. they're even continuing to this day as people you know, contact other individuals in their life, either within the prison system if they're still there or, or after they get released. And who knows yeah. the effect that you've had on how many people down the line. It's it's nice you say that, Chris. And- that is true. There are reminders every now and again. I, I go to conferences, perhaps. I still go to the mindfulness conferences from time to time, and I'm approached by somebody, weren't you that person in the, in Brixton Prison? Or, and even, you know, once an, an ex-prisoner who t- turned life around and become a mindfulness teacher and, um, you know, was, was actually working with mindfulness in in his work so yeah though it did carry on yeah yeah that's very nice yeah that's very nice and so the the theme today that we were going to explore 
was, I guess I could say, and you know the 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 secret, if it is a secret, is that you know, despite the fact that we think we're all individuals walking around in our own skins with our own experiences, that that's not necessarily the case. And there are a number of, of cultures and traditions that uh, really emphasize our, our interconnectivity. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Yes, love to. Love to. It's a it's it's a topic that not only intrigues me, but yeah, I've, I've, I feel quite passionate about it as something quite vital at, at, at this time of growing uncertainty and and impending crises you know queuing up to to be the next the, the next problem for the the human race really and and i i think that this issue that we're we're going to talk about lies somewhere near the heart of of it all so a secret is, is, is it's it's good to think of it as a secret. I believe it's probably kind of hidden from us since the the beginning of the so-called modernistic times, really, the the, the scientific revolution um, and the, the growing development of industrial culture. It perhaps was required for us. As we moved away from a mysticism and a kind of a, a, a almost magical understanding of, of of our reality into an empirically based scientific method methodological way of understanding how one thing connects with another, but in so doing, the one one of the things that had to separate from the other was the scientist, was the scientific mind. Um, and uh, we had to you know, separate out, as our language allows us to, into, into subject and object. And well, I, I, th- I think what you're, what you're describing in some way has to do with what we think of as these different, different worldviews, one of them being mechanism, mm-hmm. where it's the machine and the, the parts and everything fits together in this in this fashion that allows things to work whether it's a, an engine or a society an economy for example but there are other ways of thinking about it in terms of of context or growth you know the more what they call think of as a teleological point of view idealism as it's sometimes called and so a lot of these views about the world were being Kind of debated and thrashed out during this period that you're describing the the Enlightenment and the beginning of the scientific age, and, and mechanism seems to have kind of won out in terms mm. of you know how we tend to look at things and, and cause and effect and, and the parts in relation to the whole. Does that make sense in terms of? Yes, it does. It's 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 well put too, Chris. It's helpful that you reflect that back to me. I guess I'm perhaps going into, you know, how how did we come to this? How how did we, in a, in a way, lose touch with our interdependency, our, our our interbeing? And I'll perhaps just come back from that and, and get get to that a little later. So I th- I think the important thing to explain and put into context here is that I feel that our learning community, the ACT learning community, the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science, the, the umbrella organization that, um, that, you know, that ACT lives within, you know, has an understanding of six vital core processes of, of change, one of them being the, the self as context. And I've, I feel that our community is, is peculiarly well-placed to think of a locus of of that self as context to be beyond this skin encapsulated ego uh, that we we mostly operate from and within and feel to be you know isolated from the rest out there the the self as context is used in in act to, help, to liberate us to some extent from from being fused with with some of our inner experiences, but 
with a little more of a stretch to the idea of the self as context, we can stretch the context to the whole of the biosphere, the whole of, of, of life on Earth. And in, in so doing, we are looking at life itself as being the context, is the locus for this, this self as context. And why I think that is so important is because it's, it, it's clear e even in the last five years, perhaps since it's become possible to talk about climate change and ecological breakdown more openly as the media has opened up to it, there's still a sense in which we don't own it as 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 individuals a large number of people don't own it we've we've got some activists who are, you know are passionate and it's it, you know it's it's working on it literally as if their lives and the human life depended upon it um and we we've got some active deniers as as a small rump that that still remain um and then we've got a large number of people for whom oh, it's too much. You know, oh, there's so many crises to deal with already. Don't give me that one. It's you know, I I, I can't deal with it. It's it, it's somebody else will have to do it. Well, there, there is there is the idea of compassion fatigue. Yes, I suppose. Yeah, even even the most dedicated workers in in these various fields, whether it's working with the homeless or careers that you and I have ended up in, you know, in counseling and psychotherapy, we can get burned out. Yeah. And uh, we can at some point throw up our hands and say, I, I, I just can't do it anymore. Or, or we focus on some narrow aspect of, of uh, the situation and, and do our best to try to, to heal that. But yeah, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming, yeah. And um, one of the privileged positions I've got within ACBS is that I'm I'm president of the board of the Climate Justice and Action Special Interest Group. And, and within that, members of the board and other members of the SIG have um, been working on an intervention that, that, you know, supports people who are feeling climate anxiety or, or, or you know, b getting burned out by by their activism efforts. And I think that's an important place to be helping. But Absolutely. I, but I do feel that that's probably still a minority of those people who have dared sufficiently to open up to the extent of the, the imminent crisis. And as, as we know in our way of working, many people protect them with the phenomenon of, of experiential avoidance. Um, avoid oh, overwhelm by somehow not letting it in. And that, that kind of seems to make sense in the short term. But of course... Sure. In the, it's in, adaptive in the short term. In, yeah. Yeah. But obviously, for the, the human species, as a collective, it is anything but. And, and you know, it is not how we will render our habitat livable in the future. Just to finish that point, that's why I feel it is so important, really, that we begin to move towards a sense of interbeing, of in, intraconnectedness, as, as, as Daniel Siegel has called it recently in, in his most recent publication, intra-connectedness, as opposed to interconnectedness that still kind of suggests two units, you know, you and I, we could be interconnected as we are at the moment through, through a Zoom virtual connection. And yet we, st we still, in a way, remain kind of separate things that have a connection but intraconnectedness is quite a good invented word that, as is the the word interbeing that Thich Nhat Hanh uses 
that that sense of interpenetration of of self and other well i think i think language as you know matters mm. it, it it creates our world it, it, it forms our our concepts in in my work over many years with parents and children rather than talking about parent child interactions i would talk about parent child transactions mm which is actually from the work of well-known psychologist, child psychologist, Arnold Samaroff, because it's, it's just not an interaction. It's a transaction where, you know, parent does something, the child responds to that, and then the parent responds to the child's response. And I would call it the dance between parent mm. and child. But it's a mutually influential system. And I, I think you know, having these words that, that may seem like semantics or subtle differences really, really do matter in terms of getting people to think about things differently and in, and in ways that are useful. Yes, yes, I, yes, definitely. And I, I love the reciprocity that you described there. And, and I guess that's something that we have generally uh, dropped out of a, of an understanding of the the place and the importance of reciprocity in our relationship with our earth with our planet where whereby you know the human relationship with the earth is not one of reciprocity anymore and it ha has and had been well ever since ever since the emergence of humankind until the beginnings of um, the in industrial civilization. Are, are, are there a couple of key events or, or factors that you think contributed to our getting away from this keen sense of reciprocity and interconnectedness? Well, I suppose one of the key events was, uh, you know, the, the shift from hunter-gatherer to agrarian uh, and the accumulation of, of reserves, really, um, that they, you know, somewhere lodged in our psyche came came the possibility of a, accumulating more than we needed, you know, for for later, <laughs> mm -hmm. but also for um, amassing and, and and ultimately for for becoming more powerful than the other, and for trade and. Uh Yes, I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that the development of agriculture was one of the worst mistakes we made as a species, <laughs> which is a, perhaps a bit hyperbolic, but no, when you think about it, as, as you're describing it, yes, it led to a whole cascade of, of new ways of being in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, it, it's not as if we can kind of go back to some sort of halcyon times a, a, anyway. You know, we, we can just look at, look at events in, in our d development and, and see how, as you've asked me, some key events, there, there's, there's one, I guess, really. But, you know, having said that, agriculture all over the, the world, you know, what remains of indigenous culture, there is, there is still exemplars of of a, a respectful and re reciprocal relationship of, of human community and you know the 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 environment and the ecology that they they live alongside and manage at, at a at a manageable scale it's perhaps worth mentioning you know an, a number of of indigenous approaches uh, now that still give us an unclouded version of of the the thing that's perhaps become a secret to us <laughs> generally in in global society you know as we as the the whole model of socioeconomic exchange that that has completely colonialized our way of doing business really as human beings Tell me what you mean by colonialized. Yeah, I use it deliberately, um, but it, it would seem that in European culture, sort of 16th, 17th, 18th century, that, you know, the beginnings of, of empire 
building um, colonies set up in order to begin the extraction of wealth from from the lands that have been occupied. The, the that that wealth that surplus going to to build dynasties and and uh, I suppose oligarchies and and just those that have pursued the accumulation of 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 capital so it it implies that there are the exploiters and the exploited it certainly does but, doesn't it, it sets yeah. up that hierarchy of i'm more powerful and and even beyond that the idea that certain people they're there to be exploited that is their role in life and it's a dehumanizing aspect of that. Yes, yeah, certainly. And um, and then, of course, our relationship with our Mother Earth. I'll use that term, you know, because, the, as you say, the, our languaging is, is really important. And to actually personify the planet Earth, as, as I just have done there, is an important aspect of, of, of a change of perspective our mother earth the very earth that you know that courses through our our veins in you know in terms of, of of the nutrients that wander around our our body in our bloodstream the you know the the winds that blow through the the the, the skies encircling mother earth you know and, and in and out of our lungs not everybody has had a great relationship with their mother <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but it, it, it's the it's our ideal mother. Yes, yes, I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, the, the humankind is not having an ideal relationship with our mother presently. Um, it's true. I mean, whatever means we have to. You know, develop a kind of a systems intelligence, you know, as opposed to a, a reductionist intelligence. At that this time, I, I think is is really helpful. So personifying our Mother Earth is a helpful thing locally. I'm I'm very involved in local politics um, here in Suffolk. I'm I'm on the town council and I'm chair of our climate and ecological emergency committee and. Recently, we um, we read the rights of our, of the estuary that we we are at the uh, the mouth of the of the estuary of the river the river Deben that empties out into the North Sea about ten miles um, east of us. We've done a couple of times now. We've had quite a ceremonial occasion of, of reading out the rights of the of the river Deben, and again, you know, giving giving. A, an ecological area rights, if you like, giving. I mean, even that, you know, that's human arrogance it, itself. But, you know, it, uh, you know, functionally speaking, I think it serves a really useful function that, you know, that, oh, yeah. that our, our, our estuary has a right to a certain level of cleanliness, ease of flow, um, and a right to the ecosystem and the, the animals and the plants that, that, that live around it and so on and so forth. Now, that's a wonderful idea. And, uh, you know, when you, when you see, you know, the tops of mountains uh, off in, in Africa, even in countries in Africa, in, in, you know, desperate rush and search for more lithium to, you know, to, to create more, more batteries for our, um, a rush to <laughs> wean ourselves off fossil fuel, um, you know, and not a great deal of of understanding of what what new crises we might be storing up for ourselves. Oh yeah, we've done so much in the United States with the mining of you know everything from coal and the Appalachian country and the eastern part of the country, and you can fly over these parts of, of the world. And just look down and see the devastation and what's that, what that's done to you know the ecosystem downstream. And it's very short-sighted, or has been for a long time. Yes, 
Yeah. You mentioned that you were on this committee that's part of the Association for Contextual Behavior Science, which is yeah. the, the mothership for acceptance and commitment therapy and related therapies. And your work has been to to help people in their efforts in this area. So what what are some things that listeners may be thinking, well, you know, I'm starting to feel some some discouragement just by listening to all this. What could what could we send them off with in terms of things that you and I or anyone for that matter can do in, in our lives that might not make a huge impact, at least not right away, but could at least be a way of feeling that we're contributing to the solution and not so much being a part of the problem? Sure. Yeah. What a good question. Yeah. It's a dilemma in some ways. As as individuals, for a long time, the powers that be have um, perhaps communicated it as, uh, you know, well, okay, you just need to do your recycling better. <laughs> or perhaps, yes, get an electric car instead of, a, you know, instead of a petrol car. Um, but of course, it's it's still consumption of resources and it isn't public bus systems. While we kind of dump it on the individual we're perhaps losing sight of you know what in how institutions need to change and how you know the our, our politics needs to change and, and how our modus operandi needs to change and as individuals we we kind of can't make it it, it you know it feels that we can't make that happen and and that's i think it therein lies that sense of powerlessness and and despair almost you know how how can little me do anything about this um so i think that's why it feels so important to me to open up to the the this possibility of interconnectedness of interbeing and and i i think one of the most important things we can do is inform ourselves of it um in in terms of i mean i'm really enjoying listening to books at the moment on audible um just listening to them as stories written by people from you know having a living connection with indigenous culture and just just hearing how they speak about their relationship with with the earth that that is a great source of of understanding for me but I think informing ourselves, for, for example, of the the Gaia theory, the Gaia hypothesis of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis in the early 70s, is still a force to be reckoned with, this particular theory. The goddess Gaia, from the Greek mythology, a name given to it, and that probably may well have upset you know the apple cart here and there a little bit you know in in terms of hard science and and yet a well researched phenomenon of of realizing that both sentient life and world of minerals and and and, and chemicals have seemed to collaborate and and cooperate in an uncanny way that over the millennia have adjusted a, a balance such that is supportive of life here on earth and have, have modulated that and managed it as as we've gone through all sorts of of changes um or or has contributed to the inability to sustain life I mean, here in the States, there's been a lot of talk lately about how, you know, climate change is affecting temperatures and how certain communities within, say, a city, certain areas of that city, whether it's Seattle, where I live, or Los Angeles, mm -hmm. probably, you know, London as well, other places, that some areas of town have a lot of trees. And some parts of town are just like, flat concrete and buildings yes. and very few trees, very few parks. And lo and behold, it's a lot of the 
the poorer people who live in the concrete areas without the trees and the parks. And those er parts of, of cities are significantly warmer yes. than the leafy areas, mm -hmm. you know, and, for, and there's more pollution and what have you. And so we're degrading the earth in ways that are affecting the climate as well as, you know, the humans that live there. Yeah, so there yeah. is that reciprocity there that's, that's quite evident. We have the data. Yes, yes, that's, that, that is evident. And it, it, it brings, brings another kind of quite sensitive issue to the, to the fore that we call our special interest group the Climate Justice and Action Group. And over the last few years, that, that phenomenon of, of injustice has become so apparent to me that can't, in a way, address climate change and ecological breakdown without addressing the various injustices that, that are, are kind of embedded within this so-called wicked problem, the multifaceted, multi-caused, multi-solutions. Well, I, I would suggest that that was even the place to start. Yeah. It's as if we started addressing some of these inequities, the the injustices, and there are movements to do that to to you know plant more trees in parts of town that have been denied them because of the building codes or or the ways that we've allowed development to occur. Putting putting massive highways through the poor sections of town when they were built. Yes, you know they they don't they don't put the the highway through the nice parts of town. No. <laughs> And that is a way that, you know, the system as it is at the moment is self-propagating and um, in a way self-regulating. It, it has a certain status quo that it wants to maintain. It wants to as a system and, mm -hmm. and it, it will do. The inequities that are there will continue to be propagated. I guess even unconsciously, the one you you bring up there, the the affluent areas will not be the ones that you know become concretized, um, right? The, the, because they are rich and they want to maintain their privileges. We all do, you know. We you, you and I, um, you know. I think the last time we spoke, we, you know, there was there was that that sense in which we. We recognise that, you know, part of that putting right the uh, in, injustices is is that it's going to require some relinquishment of the, you know, the privileges that we we take for granted, really. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think, as you were saying a moment ago, it starts with just becoming more knowledgeable and more aware, because you know, when I think of when I think of my privilege. What it often comes down to is that I don't have to think about this stuff. Mm. You know, that, that's my privilege. Gosh, you know, yeah. I, I, mm. I don't have to think about um, the things that, that people of, you know, ethnic minorities or, you know, people with less resources. You know, if I need something, I just, like, go out and get it. Mm pretty much. And uh, I walk into a store and I don't have to necessarily think about being trailed by a security guard who thinks I'm going to oh. steal something. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, basking in that, that ignorance is untenable. Yes, it's almost invisible as well, isn't it? Until, mm -hmm. it is, until, it, until it is pointed out and then it can feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do bristle at the, the kids in the supermarket looking at me, you know, sympathetically saying, do you, do you need help carrying that out? <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> don't need this help carrying this out. So I think I'm, I'm encountering some, some interesting stuff now that I, I, I'm old. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, for the most part, you know, I don't have to think about this stuff. And that contributes to the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a big intergenerational problem as well. You know, from the point of view of my my son in his 
mid twenties. Um, you know, my youngest child is is quite vocal about the boomer generation, and uh, you know, quite what they have left. Yes, for the upcoming generations, in in a way that I was with my folks, I suppose. You, you know, at the height of the Cold War, when I was. You know, an act, a peace activist on peace camps in, in the in the UK, and and you know, just f- feeling that they didn't get it somehow or another, and how could they have left this problem for me to, you know, ha- have to deal with in my youth, and yet, right. you know, here I am now, still an activist, but you know, different different um, things to be an activist about, and the generations upcoming, yeah. D- different threats or maybe even not so much different because uh, I, I too grew up with threats of war with the Soviet Union and uh, duck and cover drills in, yeah. in school and, you know, everything old is new again. Now we're, you know, dealing with the war in Ukraine, all the threats that that carries with it. But yes, I, I have a son who's in his late 20s and he's quite you know, unhappy with, with my generation and the, the new threats that, that were leaving him and yeah. his, his peers. Um, and, you know, the things that he sees as no longer available, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the price of a house, you know, Absolutely. where you want to live or, you know, the idea of having children and the way the world is right now, it's, uh, it's very sad. It's heartbreaking. It is. It is. And your question a way back that I didn't properly answer, but, you know, what what could you suggest to to people? I mean, one thing that we we have kind of promoted, I suppose, is, is values to action. You know, feeling the anxiety of climate and ecological breakdown and being brave enough to touch in to the despair of it in in a, a facilitated and supported way and being heard as we speak from our heart and soul of our despair can give us access to our our values what absolutely matters to us in in terms of what kind of world do we want to leave behind for these upcoming generations and you know what is our individual contribution to that and then becoming engaged in you know reaching for whatever we can reach in whatever place we are in in life and the low-hanging fruit to begin with whatever that may be and beginning to you know set goals and take actions in the service of those values is profoundly meaningful and you know for me it it's it's what gets me out of bed in the morning really nowadays is 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 climate action um it it i i get such a buzz off it you know i i plant trees you know i'm tree warden for my local area involved in lots of groups as a musician many of my songs are around these topics and i suppose now the opportunity of talking with you and, and you know possibly communicating um you know through your your blog um ideas that are really important not only to me but i feel you know collectively to all of us um if we can find our way back to understanding our interbeing with that which we are exploiting um then we'll, we'll stop exploiting ourselves, I suppose, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because it only comes back to hurt us. Yeah. And whether it's a refugee somewhere or a climate issue, you know, it's, ultimately it's going to impact our lives. And we can, we can pretend that it's not and we can erect higher walls around our gated community yeah. Um, but that's, in my opinion, no way to live. Um, but to, to be able to, as you say, sort of turn toward 
uh, turn into the wind, turn toward the despair, turn toward the anxiety, and use it, you know, a, a motivator and a touchstone for, you know, I'm I'm anxious about this because I care. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's a beautiful phrase. I'm anxious about this because I care. And and then, you know, we can we can begin to drop into, you know, how do you express that in terms of, of values? And that brings me around in a circle, I suppose, because I think it collective values, values that we can we can all understand, I suppose. You'll probably know the the pro social model that we've we have in the act learning community working with groups towards towards pro-social change so just in in terms of small groups to begin with coming together with a group of people that are, are wanting to to work on these issues together is is enormously encouraging and the mutuality of of being with a group of, of people that are all inspired by by such activity such actions being activists in some ways um it, it yeah you get a buzz off that but the important thing for me i think is in in the the pro social model we go round the the matrix the act matrix that, that those four quadrants and we identify our own personal values and, and then we look at the other three quadrants and we think of actions we could take in the service of those values. And we, we also anticipate the typical stuff that will come up in our, in our minds that, that, that will put us off and, you know, that, that limit us in some way and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get in the way. And then we think of what typical activities would, you know, we distract ourselves so that we, we're well informed about, you know, how to move towards things that matter to us as individuals. And then in the pro-social model, we'll run through that same thing again as a collective, as a group of people that have come together to see if we can work out what the collective values are for this particular group um, mm -hmm. and, and run run through that same whole same process again. So for me, if we can move into a sense of self that is a big s that is you know life on earth if mm -hmm. if you like the biosphere a sense of self that is all inclusive really that right. is about you know checking in on you know what 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 might not only you know this human and and that human but this particular slime mold for example <laughs> you know what basic core values um you know do we have in 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 terms of working towards and and i think values that come from that place are embodied ecological values and i suspect that values that come from an individual place are kind of a bit akin to the values we might associate with being a good citizen, you know, good citizenship, you know, by picking up the litter off the street and, you know, because it's because it's kind of messy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that, that I think, you know, that's that's possibly where as individuals we can find ourselves looking for inspiration there. But, but that bigger collective is is a much more inspiring place to to touch into ecological valuing. Right. And, and, you know, we get to choose what we're going to matter about. Not everybody has to matter about the slime mold. Ho for, for, hopefully, fortunately, some people are, and that's, that's their thing. And, uh, but if I feel like I have to worry about the slime mold plus migrants, plus climate change, plus on and on and on, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, hide out. So we can, we can, we don't have to matter about everything, but if we can find something that does speak to us, that does give us a buzz, that does resonate and, and move toward that. Like, and, and if we all did that, then, you know, somebody out there would care about the slime mold and, you know, God bless them. Well, the slime mold would care about the slime mold. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and it does. Yeah, if we allowed it to. <laughs> they are a fascinating life form. 
the the, the slime mold. Uh, yeah. It, perhaps that's a topic for another podcast. Yes, perhaps it is. <laughs> but yes, it, it, it's it's kind of super intelligence without a brain. It, it it's it's fantastic. But, but yeah. Um, I, I get what you're saying, um, but I, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about a perspective to occupy, but but not a not you know not a not a vast congregation of people to worry about, but, but a, just a, a sense of um, an, a, of identity that is so inclusive that it you know that it that it it, it will be the slime mold and the 21st century human beings that that we are will be worry you know not worrying but but you know valuing the same right. the, the same kind of continuity and the same aspects of continuity um life life and the propagation of of the species Right, and as as you pointed out, it includes the inorganic world as well. Yeah, because mm. the kinds of buildings that we build, or where we pour the concrete, and how much of it, you know, the the mountaintop that we scrape off. Yeah, you know, those are all part of us. Yes, yes, that's it. They're all part of us. They're all, and they're all parts of us that we are damaging. And and noticing that, you know, we we can we we can look at what behaviours we value and what what behaviours we we'd like to change. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Well, that might be a good place to stop. Great stuff, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.